When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's right, everybody. We are back, and this is the true episode 215. We have changed the order of our episode release, so there's going to be another episode in which I say 215, and that's incorrect. So, anyway, the episode, this episode title is, What is Hacktoberfest? And hopefully it's something that will fix our episode numbering system. But basically, Mike is going to go through exactly what the title says. What is Hacktoberfest? It is... Uh, Something that happens in October every year, programmers talk about it, sometimes there's controversy, sometimes there's drama, and sometimes there's passion. I don't know, I'm just trying to make it sound like a bit of a soap opera. But anyway, if this sounds interesting to you and you want to support the show, you can go check us out on that Patreon, leave a review or rating on your podcast app. Join us in our Discord server or share this with your friends. And I want to have a full disclaimer right now, I am ill, so my my uh, voice is probably going to be slightly different, not too bad. But if I don't reply to Mike in a timely manner, I have muted myself to cough, because as Mike has seen in our new working webcam, that uh, I have been coughing profusely the entire time. Anyway, Mike, before I do start coughing, please, sir, let us know what Hacktoberfest is. All right, and hopefully you feel better and don't cough all the time on the microphone, but uh, it's fine sometimes. I think everyone's ready for it. Uh, So... Let's just dive right in into what is Hacktoberfest, because like Matt said, you've heard about it as a developer, hopefully. If you haven't heard about it, I'll tell you what it is, but it has a lot of things surrounding it, and uh, I just want to kind of, my main goal of this episode is to tell you what it is so that you understand it, to try to get you to participate in it from a sense of like, especially if you're looking for a job, so think about it from there, I'm going to explain more later on. And I want to make sure that people don't abuse it. That's the other and final goal, right? Because a lot of the controversy that Matt was talking about earlier was the fact that in the early days of Hacktoberfest, people would abuse this month to literally spam pull requests into open source repos and make the maintainers go crazy with having to decline them and mark them as spam. So it would just be literally a maintainer spam fest rather than hacktoberfest but hopefully this month this year will be a little bit better there's a little bit more structure like like every year they kind of iterate on it make it better so let's see is this uh was was i I seem to recall i've never actually participated in hacktoberfest and i seem to recall a t-shirt controversy is that a is that a thing is that a thing that i'm remembering correctly you are remembering it correctly yes uh because DigitalOcean sponsors the event so they've created the event, Hacktoberfest, and what they do is for the first 40,000 main, uh, first 40,000 people that will get four merge requests approved, pull requests approved, they will give you a t-shirt. That's how they used to do it. That's how they're doing it this year. There's a little bit of a twist this year. I'll talk about it in a second. Uh, but that's what was happening and people were obviously spamming 
to get those t-shirts for whatever reason because they couldn't afford a t-shirt. I don't know. Uh, it's possible that it could have been just for shits and giggles. I can't really judge. But regardless, there was a lot of spam going on. They are trying to kind of nail it down, but I don't think it's all go- it's all going to be gone this year. I think there is still a chance of people spamming. But overall, from the early stages, because it's already been four or five days in, in October, uh, it sounds like it's being a little bit more managed and a little bit more productive, which is great. Again, let's jump right into it, though, with first defining open source development a little bit, because really what Hacktoberfest is all about is open source. And if you haven't ever delved into open source or don't know about it, essentially all it means is that a code base is open to the public for both viewing. So you can see how, what, what's inside the code, what all the code progress, you can see the commit, like as the code is being developed, you can see the commits coming in, usually with GitHub, GitLab, Bitbucket, whatever, in, in some sort of Git repository. And it also opens it up for potential contributions. So allowing the community, so if you're using a product, like if you're using OBS, for instance, it's an open broadcasting software, right? That's an open source product. It allows you to be able to contribute to the product that you're actually using, right? So that's really the heart of open source development. It's a, it's been a big part of programming since the beginning of programming in general. And Hacktoberfest, is a month-long kind of quote-unquote celebration introduced by DigitalOcean that promotes contributing to open-source projects. Projects themselves, it's not any open-source project, just to define it a little bit. Projects themselves have to opt in to Hacktoberfest using a Hacktoberfest tag on their GitHub or GitLab repository to participate in the Hacktoberfest month. Right. So it's not like you can just go on GitHub, find an open source project and contribute. You have to actually go and find the Hacktoberfest. Not, I don't want to say approved because I think anyone can submit the tag. Like it's not an approval process. So you just have to find the participating repositories and contribute to them. That's the key here. Now, this year is a little bit different in the way that it's meant to be a little bit more inclusive uh, for people that aren't just developers. So I don't know if you've noticed over the past year or two, a lot of there's been a big shift in content creation on the development side. There's been these roles coming up and we're going to have an episode about it in the future called developer advocacy roles, where developers will essentially be in charge of marketing to other developers. That's how I see it. And this year, Hacktoberfest has opened it up to those developer advocates to be able to contribute without having to write code. So essentially what that means, you can contribute writing by writing a blog post about the open source project, even recording a podcast about the open source project, or any other kind of advocacy-related work, and I'll talk about it a little bit more in detail in one of the segments down below. You know, there's one thing I do want to talk about really, really briefly. Uh, uh, before we get too far away, I suppose, from the open source development or open source project uh, def- definition, I guess, and that is that, and this probably pertains to Hacktoberfest as well, but um, I was watching YouTube last night, actually, and I watched this guy play this mod pack on an old game, Mike knows it, called Stalker. And it's this it's this mod pack that uh, combines all three of the games and does a whole bunch of changes and stuff like this. And, and he says something that's interesting, and it, it's one of those things where I never really thought of it that way, but I kind of knew it and understood it right away. And he said that... 
most people think that Stalker, which is a very old game, is, you know, just that an old game that is out of date, this and that. But this mod pack, this community, these development teams that put together these mod packs or multiple mod packs, whatever, have curated and basically had an open source, effectively an open source repo, I suppose, because I'm not sure how they made it all, but an open source repo, open source collection, and they curated and crowdsourced a solution to making this game very modern feeling, working on modern machines, very optimized. There's even toggle switches for the guy. He had a weird problem with stutters, and there's literally a checkbox. It's like, if you stutter, click this, and he did it, and it went away. And he was saying that it's like the power of open source. And whenever I used to think about open source in the past, it was always a company has made something. Like, let's just, I'll use OBS as an example. Or actually, OBS, let's use WordPress as an example. So the Word, the WordPress company, whatever they are, make, make WordPress. They make WordPress and they, they ship it out every year, every month, whatever. They put out updates all the time. It's a constantly supported thing. But then the people, they constantly contribute to it. They can go into WordPress. They can rip it, rip it to pieces, but they can make these plugins for it. And it makes this sort of curated thing. And I never really thought of open source in any other way than base product with add-ons. I always just thought of it that way. I knew it could be more. I knew you could change the core files. I knew you could change the original program. But when the other guy was saying, this has been crowdsourced for um, optimization and for um, making these things more modern and making these things work better and work on multiple machines, multiple computer configurations, different hardware. And really, really made me think like, this is really a powerful thing. It's not just that you want to change the title or change how the buttons are laid out or change the typography. You're really sort of crowdsourcing a solution. Like it's a, it's like a, everyone's brains put together to solve something sometimes. And I just thought that was an interesting point to bring up. Yeah. And I think that that kind of hits the nail on the head of what open source allows you to do. There's some negatives to it because you get convoluted solutions to problems that shouldn't happen. But regardless, the positives greatly outweigh them because you get the minds that can do specific tasks really well. So a, a really good example would be something like a framework. If someone can like a Vue.js, Svelte, React, they're all open source. If someone's very good at, you know, implementing a rendering function, like that's their thing. They've done that for 10, 15 years. They can contribute that part to one of those frameworks to elevate it, right? Whereas if it's just a team of hired developers, the chances of you finding that one person that's just good at rendering functions is going to be really like really slim. When you open source it to the community, because the community is benefiting from the project, they're incentivized to provide a better solution if they see one that they can do. And a lot of times what, what, what happens with these open source projects is these people that contribute can do things really quickly that the team would take like, you know, a year or two to accomplish because they've done it many times. So they're like, oh, I can implement this like, you know, on, on Friday. And they go and they implement it on Friday, put in a, mer- a pull request, do some edits, and all of a sudden there's a new feature in your favorite open source project. Because this one specialized developer found it, needed that feature, and implemented it himself or herself. I think that's kind of an interesting 
and really important aspect to how open source development works uh, and how these projects can become bigger and bigger. I think like, of course, there's some, amb- there, there's some, you know, weights to be had to like, okay, Facebook owns React, so they should be able to do it all themselves, right? They have the resources to be able to close React and make it as good as possible. But I don't think even if Facebook were to throw the resources that they could at it, it would be as good as it is right now because of the fact that it's open source. So that's that's where I kind of think that companies should start thinking more in open source in the open source realm more often than not, because they can it's not to say that like they're getting free work done. They're getting very expert, very high expertise work done that they just couldn't even hire for. Because someone, it's someone just, cared enough to do it, they didn't. Correct. They weren't. They weren't paid to show up for eight hours to do it. Yeah, it's a different. It's a different perspective. You're getting a different level of work. That's just how I see it. I, I, this is not saying that all that all open source work is amazing. I'm just saying it's a, pos- a potential to get that. One question I actually have, and this just popped into my mind when you were talking there, is that we oftentimes will see an app or programs come out, and they work just as good as they did when they came out. Let's say they came out five years ago, but we will rate it down or it won't be as popular anymore because it's quote unquote not supported. And so companies now they release a product and they support it for years and years and years and years and years or months and months, depending on whatever the context calls for. I wonder if that is what, if that is a a direct consequence or like, I don't know what, I don't really want to call it a consequence, a direct like reaction, I guess, to open source where a project could come out. Let's say Mike made it. Mike makes uh, the be- the world's best slider for a website. And then all of a sudden, Mike doesn't want to do that anymore. So he passes it on. He doesn't have to pass it on to me. He can pass it on to anyone else. He could just give it to the community and say, I know I don't want to run this anymore. Go ahead. And whether another big body comes in and runs things, whether they buy that open source repo and keep it open or Whatever the legalities and the, the the stuff around it is, there's ways oftentimes or almost always for open source projects to continue existing. And even though it's not always the main company or the original source that's creating those updates and doing the support, the support kind of continues on depending on the popularity of that repo or of that program. And so it's I, I never really thought of it, but I wonder how much that has caused companies to say, Oh God, we have to support, we have to support our apps and our games and our programs and our productivity suites for years now. We can't just ship it and walk away. I think it's twofold. I think there is some of that where they're like, well, competing with these open source projects that are constantly supported by a massive group of people, right? There's some of that for sure. The main reason why that's happening though is because of subscriptions. Before you could buy Word 2005, and that thing will be maintained for a year and then be completely forgotten about because Word 2006 is coming out. I gotcha, yep. So that is no longer a thing for, you know, 90%, statistic pulled out of my ass, but 90% of uh, applications out there, everything is a subscription. So it's assumed that if you're paying for a subscription, the software will be updated and maintained for as long as you're paying for that subscription. And that's, I think, the main reason for this, what you're seeing of like consistent updates and consistent maintenance of the same application. Nothing is left alone. Nothing is allowed to just be good. 
It just has to, it, they have to iterate, they have to remove a feature and add a feature every month or whatever, like, which is on the one hand, great that they're iterating. On the other hand, when you're iterating just for the sake of iterating, it's a pain in the ass. You have some situations where they remove features just to add them back in in the future, or they remove features that you're using because 50% of people don't use them or something like that, or, you know, 49% of people, only only 49% of people use them. They start to do these analytics Whereas if you bought the app, the application, you know, in 2005, that feature that you were always you going to use is always going to be there. It's never going away. Right. So which was I don't know. I the predictability of your software was something you could rely on. Now it's like you might have to adapt every six months to completely new feature sets. Well, the thing too when you when you said that is that also highlights the difference, like you said, where if Facebook comes out and somebody puts out some sort of good up update. They push out, they, they have a pull request for some sort of, uh, I don't know, UI change that's really, really good, hypothetically. And in this hypothetical, you know, they, they love that change and they end up pulling it in there and it goes into production and, and yada, yada. That person, like we said, was not obligated to do that. They used Facebook, didn't like the UI for some reason, made a new one and like short, like beyond the, beyond the concept, they didn't concept a new one. They literally made a whole new one. And then ask Facebook to take it in, and then that person, then Facebook took it in. That's a different level of commitment than someone who now has that obligation of the nine to five, but now it's even furthered beyond the individual employee to the company because now the company is trying to rely on the various subscription fees and they want to keep those subscription fees up. And so now the company is beholden to the subscription fees. So you have this weird tree of companies beholden to subscription fee. Um, the developers slash the development team is beholden to a paycheck and beholden to their career and their job. And you have, and you don't have like, like passion doesn't need to be in there. Everyone's kind of beholden in there. I'm sure I'm certainly, I'm I'm sure that there are people in these teams that are passionate. Absolutely. But it, it doesn't, it doesn't need to be there. Everyone's beholden to something, but someone on open source, I could write up a whole add on to a program that I like. It could revolutionary, revolutionize that program. And I know it's going to be great. I could get 98% of the way through it. I could walk away, delete that repo and and delete my uh, change and never worry about it again. There's, I'm not beholden to anything. Yes, that's for sure. And it's, it's both the positive, positive and negative effect of open source, right? Because if it's too niche of a product and too niche of a software and you need it, and there's no one maintaining it, it becomes a risk to use and a risk to integrate. So it's called, it's all give and take. It's all that. Um, the, the only other thing I want to point out is like the Facebook example. I, I fully understand what you're saying. I think it's clear just for the audience's sake. Facebook isn't open source itself. It's just the React framework that's open source. And like, so, so a user can't actually like submit a new UI to Facebook. Yeah. That's it's, a hypothetical. Yeah. yeah it's a not- hypothetical. I get that the hypothetical. I just wanted to make it clear for, uh, for everyone else, just in case someone's like, hey, I want to submit a new UI to Facebook. Yeah, they're not going <laughs> to. We'll say one thing, though, isn't like Twitter isn't open source, but Twitter allows you with their API, I think, still to make your own Twitter app. Yes, with, that'd so, be kind of cool. Limitations. Be, yeah, of course, because you're limited by their API. Like they're going to yes. filter in. They're going to add and remove things from their API as they see fit. It would be freaking awesome if you could do that on Facebook. Not that I really use Facebook that much, though. So I don't really know why I'm like, yeah. And then I'm like, oh, but I wouldn't do that. (laughs) Yeah, Facebook, Facebook, I feel like it would be too complicated for that. Like, there's just so many parts. But the advantage would be you could actually make a simple Facebook. 
Yeah, like a Facebook light or something. Yeah, a Facebook feed. Just like have just certain elements that you actually care about because 99% of Facebook I don't care about. Anyway, they don't allow you to do that as far as I know. Um, And the Twitter API is limited in the sense that I think it's it's severely rate limited now. So there used to be like third-party Twitter apps that you could get like on the App Store and have like a full-on Twitter experience. Now, I think... If they do exist, they're limited to like a thousand people. So like the first thousand people can download it and no one else can because Twitter realized that their income comes from uh, ads and they're not serving their ads through APIs. So here's a weird one for you, Mike, as the last tangent in this episode, hopefully, but probably not. (laughs) Do you remember when Netflix used to let you make custom apps? No. Netflix used to let you make custom apps with their API. What People used to have their own Netflix apps. That's 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 true. <sighs> that is factual. Obviously, it was limited by their API. So whatever they allowed you to use, whatever. And I remember distinctly that Facebook or Netflix come, comes out. Other things come out like Netflix viewer and this and that and whatever they were called. And then they slowly started getting shrunk, shrunk, shrunk. And then the API was canned and that was it. Yeah. Yeah, that that would be crazy because you. I mean, that opens it up for like having Amazon Prime, Netflix, everything in one thing. I mean, I know Google TV does that to a certain degree, um, but it'd be nice to have like an open source platform that could do that. It's not going to happen ever. Uh, but yeah, that that would have been cool. I didn't know about that. That's that's interesting. But let's uh, move right along to back to Hacktoberfest. Uh, we talked about the no code contributions. That's great. So you don't have to be a developer or if you're a little bit shy in your skills, maybe it's a good way for you to at least get one of those PRs done by just submitting a blog post on the topic or something. Next, what do you get? So like Matt was mentioning earlier, the whole teacher controversy. Yes, there is a teacher being awarded, right? You do have to set do certain things to get the T-shirt. Those certain things are complete the four pull requests, get four pull requests accepted within the time frame of Oktoberfest, which or Hacktoberfest, which is October. But other than that, those are the only things. Then you can get your T-shirt. This year, they have added a chance for you to select between a T-shirt or a tree planted in your name. The reasoning here is that a lot of people already have their T-shirts. So some people might select the tree. It's more environmentally friendly than sending a T-shirt across the globe. Uh Either way, uh, those are your options for your actual digital ocean provided swag from Hacktoberfest. Now, there is third party swag from projects that are participating. Projects like Amplification, for instance, there's a bunch more. If you get a certain amount of pull requests submitted in those projects, they have their own swag that they're giving out. So if you're in it for the swag, right, there is plenty to get. Just make sure that you're actually contributing tangible things because the larger the company, obviously, the more picky they are with their accepted pull requests. That's how it's going to be. Okay. So you're not going to be able to get like the the t-shirt. You could probably still spam your way into it. Don't do it. I'm just saying it. I, I, there's probably ways around all the spam filters. I don't think you'll be able to get around it with an actual internal company because they have all the rights to accept or decline your pull requests. And it's going to be a lot easier for them to find a spam, spam versus not spam. Let me, let me ask you a question, Mike. So let me, let's say, for example, about, about a pull request that might be picky. So let's, let's say, 
for example, um, we we have a website. So let's just say, uh, I mean, sh- shameless self plug, Day One Patch Media. So we have dayonepatchmedia.com. It's a WordPress site. It's just there. That, that's all it is. The WordPress site houses a bunch of gaming content and that's it. Okay. Let's say, for example, it, it is open source. And in this hypothetical, um, you do not like the nav bar uh, text color. You don't like the text color. You want it changed. So let's say we're on GitHub. You clone the repo and you go in for whatever reason. You don't use WordPress and you go in and you with just some CSS, you change the text color. And then you go to do a pull request. Is this is is you changing it in the appropriate CSS file good enough? And then it's more bureaucracy around the change. So are you filling in a form saying exactly what you did, why you did it, how it should be used with screenshots and this and that? Or is this more of a, hey, you're not supposed to be cloning the whole repo and changing that, you fool. You're supposed to be just cloning down the one CSS and then changing that and then doing a pull request. Because obviously Git will detect that you've only changed that one CSS file. So like how... How would that play out, do you think, if you were like the average picky company? If you're the average picky company and you agreed with the change that the person put in, even if it's just changing a TSS variable, if that change inf- uh, like, uh, is agreed upon by whoever is the maintainer of that repo, then yes, that counts no matter what. But in terms of them being picky, are they just being picky – in a bureaucratic way where they want the pull request to have a full description and such oh, or, or like, like in terms of like someone who's like anxious, like you're saying, if someone's anxious or is, is a little unsure of their programming ability, if they went to go change the CSS in my example, like they, the, the first thing that would come to my mind is I don't want to look like an idiot to be blunt. I don't want to look like a, like a, like an idiot pushing like this pull request that changes this, this CSS, am I supposed to have some sort of special staging thing for them and then do a pull request from that? Or am I supposed to fill in this very specific form? Like, is there anything like that? Or is it just purely pickiness as in, ah, we don't need to change the text color. You know, it goes against our brand. We're just not going to do that. And they turn away a lot of requests like that. So it's both. It's for sure. Both. Uh, the, the larger the company, so like something like Amplification, which is an actual like funded company. Yeah. The larger the company, the harder it is going to be to get your pull request submitted. And it comes down to multiple things. They do have a form that you have to apply. Uh, not You don't submit it into like a form on a website. Inside, the Git, inside of GitHub, when you create a pull request, you have to – you have to structure your pull request in a certain way for them to be able to look at it, right? That's number one. Number two is you have to have done the code change in a proper way as well. Now, there is documentation on how to properly do this all. This isn't just you blindly going into it in the dark, you know, setting up your staging environment. Like that kind of stuff you shouldn't have to worry about. There should be in the documentation how to run this locally, how to pull this down properly, how to submit a pull request. Here's all the details. That's a a good company, a good open source project. That's going to be a very, very big focus for them is figuring out the procedures that allow members of the community to submit proper pull requests because that's, that's their bread and butter. Like that's how they, that's how they're going to grow. 
So they're not going to allow for, they're not going to allow the wild west of like random for, randomly formatted stuff, but they are going to give you all of the tools and knowledge that they can for you to be able to do that. Okay, that makes sense. So it cuz it, it's very much at that point a proprietary procedure. It's not so much that there's a a one size fits all or anything like that. It's 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 ultimately up to whoever is controlling that repo. Absolutely, yes. And it's a proprietary procedure. The the larger the company, the larger the open source project, the more contributors, the more proprietary and the more structured it will be. The smaller open source repos will still probably have structure. It's just going to be a lot looser, right? So they're, they're going to have less automation. So a lot of these larger repos, like if you submit it in the improper structure, they're going to have a bot that goes through and just like declines it immediately and tells you what you need to change like in an automated fashion. No one's going to yell at you. So don't be afraid of that. But it, th- that's part of the, that's part of the process of a, pl- of, of kind of learning how to be a maintainer and how to be a contributor to an open source project is all of this automation stuff is the actual formatting of how you submit. And I'll talk about that really shortly, like why that's so important to learn, right? It is, it is really important, but okay. So you get, the project swag, you get the t-shirt from the DigitalOcean, and there will be some intangibles that you will get. So it's not just a t-shirt winning fest, right? Like it's not just about that. It's really mostly about what kind of skills you get when you actually contribute to open source. And I'll talk and about NFTs, that in a sec. Always NFTs. Only NFTs. You only get NFTs. I think <laughs> 10 years from now, you'll be contributing <laughs> NFTs and you'll be getting NFTs. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing against NFTs. I just yeah. wanted to like uh, ca- capitalize on their popularity and now not popularity. Not popularity. Yeah. But you know <laughs> what I mean. down so hard, <laughs> but yeah, pretty good. Uh, okay, so let's just quickly run through the rules. There's not that many, so don't worry about that. The rules are you have to create the pull requests within the Hacktoberfest period, Hacktoberfest period, 1st of October to the 31st of October. So if the podcast is coming out tomorrow, you have 26 days. The PRs cannot be spammy. So the pull requests cannot be just, please merge this dot. That was happening. And people were merging, like people were getting t-shirts by doing that. Please merge this dot. Please, please merge. Just literally request with please merge, nothing in it, no changes. That stuff was happening. Don't do that. That's a, that's a bullshit thing to do during this month. That's not what this month is about. It's not that hard to get full pull request merge. Just go through the process. I'll lay out how you can participate in a second. I'll give you all the resources you need. Trust me. First of all, you don't want to be seen as a spammer during Hacktoberfest in a public repo. Like people will be able to see that your account was a spam account. You will be tagged as a spammer. That is a thing that happens. Don't do it. Don't spam. Don't be be like Mike is what he's saying. Don't Don't be be like like Mike. This is a public service announcement from someone that was caught. Sp- no, I'm kidding. I was not caught spamming. But regardless, don't do it. Don't create dumb issues yourself and then solve them with another account. Like, don't try to hack your way into it, uh, uh, like, away from Why the bots. Why don't you just do a damn pull request? Like, do a change and then do a pull request. There's Come on, plenty people. of changes out there. There's, like, thousands and thousands of changes that you could do. You could go to documentation and literally find a spelling mistake and do and fix the spelling mistake, and that's actually a good change. 
Yeah, I've I've seen people that 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 have recommended time and time again that be your first time you you do it, Correct. Or your your first pull request, so that you you go through the entire procedure and all you did was change a spelling mistake, and they're not going to be like, no, I'd prefer, I'd prefer to have the spelling mistake. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, like go and find a way to reword something in a better way for people to understand. Don't. And I want to be clear with this. This is something that some people were doing. They were going to the documentation and they were changing words to synonyms of that word. Don't do that. Get the thesaurus out tonight and start yeah. doing that. <laughs> like they were getting the thesaurus and they were literally changing words to synonyms. Don't do that. That's a spam. You're going to be marked a spam. You are going to be disqualified. 100%. I would love it if I like <laughs> ran like a – I'm not going to do this, by the way. This is a joke. But it would be amazing if I created a GitHub account and then decided to be like i'm gonna do everything i can to not truly participate in hacktoberfest i'm just gonna try to get through all the safeguards they have in place all the anti-spam stuff and i'm gonna try and then the goal is end of the month or whenever the t-shirts come out very first day get the t-shirt throw it on take a picture for the instagram that would be an incredible challenge that i'm not gonna do because i don't want to ruin people's repos but still i mean I don't think it's much of a challenge, to be honest. I think you could do it really easily. Like, there's plenty of ways that you can – if you want to spam, there's going to be spammer. Like, it's going to happen. I don't think it's possible to completely eliminate them. There's ways around it in many different ways. So, you could do it. Don't do it. Don't freaking do it. If you're listening to this podcast, don't be a dick. Period. Now, with that, the other the other rules are PRs must – be in a repo with the Hacktoberfest tag. I will have a link to that tag in the show notes. Okay? That you'll be able to view all of the repos that have that tag. If the if the repo that you're contributing to does not have the Hacktoberfest tag, you will not get a pull request merge, even if it's all approved and all that. So just make sure that's going on. And to complete Hacktoberfest, I've said it before, you just need four pull requests merged within that month. That's it. So, moving on to the next segment here. Why should you participate? Open source projects need help. So, just from the, just from the top down, from the open source project perspective, there is thousands of them. I mean, just participating in a Hacktoberfest, there's close to 100,000. Just participating. All of these projects need help. There's libraries, there's little things, there's, you know, lists of, of, of repositories, all of that. They all need help with either actual coding work or translation work or developer advocacy work or test creation or design, whatever. They need help. That's one reason why you should participate. Maintainers of highly used libraries and frameworks can't do it all themselves. If Svelte, for instance, I love Svelte, everyone knows that was run by one person, Rich Harris, it would be nowhere near where it is right now. There is a team of maintainers running it, and there's actual community members just per- contributing to it. That is the only way it's been able to get to the stage that it's at. That's it. Even React, funded and run by Facebook, would not be where it's at without the contrib- contributors contributing, the random contributors contributing, not just the maintainers. That's where we're. That, that's what I want to talk about from the high level perspective, from the actual maintaining perspective. From your perspective, what benefits you? That's the main thing I'm going to focus on. 
Number one is get you get real world experience. Matt was Matt was talking about earlier with the whole structured pull request contribution, all that. It might be a little bit intimidating. Fair enough. But that is how the real work scenarios usually are. When you get onboarded to your first job as a developer, you're going to be taken through the process of how you how you pull down your code, how you set up the repo, how you contribute, how do you do a, how do you pull push a pull request, how do you approve a pull request, who approves it? It's going to they're going to take you through that hopefully if it's a good company. They're going to take you through that process. It's going to be similar, not the same. It's going to be similar to what you're going to be have to do as a contributor to an open source project. So if you already have that experience, it's going to make it easier for you to be able to contribute to your job right away. Not only is it going to be able to contribute to your job right away, it's going to be make it easier for you to get the job for many different reasons. One of those reasons is the fact that you already have experience working with the team. Because any contribution that you do, you're not doing it to yourself. You're doing it to a maintainer of the project. They're going to look at your code. They're going to approve your code. They're going to give you feedback. That's all part of working with the team. It's not everything, but it is a big part of it. You're going to get something to talk about on your interview. So a lot of in, in an interview setting, a lot of the times they're going to be asking you about your personal projects. They're going to be asking about your education. What really makes you stand out is, is if you've contributed to a project like an open source project. Because that means that not only have you been able to write code that works and great personal projects are great and really important. I'm not saying don't do them, but the actual act of contributing and having a pull request approved in open source shows 10 more skills to the interviewer. It shows the fact that you can, you know, communicate effectively to enough to get your project approved, get, get your pull request approved. It shows that you can understand direction. You took an issue. You, you, you took the pull request form. You made sure that it was in the right format. That's a huge, huge bonus. Trust me. It's a, it's a problem for some new developers to get to that point where they can just automatically contribute to a project. There is uh there was actually a conversation in our discord actually recently about someone who had uh, shown off a project or two and w- had said that they were comfortable then applying in one of our mods. Um, and I, I chimed in as well. Uh, and I'm just paraphrasing everyone's conversation. I don't have it all perfectly in my memory, but basically he was saying, our, mo- our mod was saying that um, it was worthwhile for him to try to find a freelance client or to try to ship something basically to sort of a quote unquote real production environment. And I had mentioned uh, to sort of further that conversation that that was a set of skills that they would have developed in finding a client, which may not be the most important thing depending on your, your position, but certainly working with somebody, uh, taking a vision, which is probably said in plain English and making making that vision a reality with code and those type of skills are really handy. And this once again is just another skill set that you can do and show off that you have just like with the um, side projects that you're doing, that you're doing for yourself, your little personal projects for your portfolio, which a lot of people are doing no doubt. 
you want to show different skills, like this one has more design than this other one. This one has some arithmetic. This one has uh, a bunch of plugins. This one pulls from a remote API. This one, and the list goes on with all kinds of different skills. This one's in React. This one's in Vue. This one's in vanilla, whatever. The, this is doing things in, in a different way, in a different context, like providing, uh, we'll just, we'll just say it's assistance to open source projects or providing a service to a client or just another set of skills that you've shown you've been successful at using. Yep. Absolutely. Exactly. Like it's, it, it is, it is a step up, right? Again, getting a job is all a comp. It's really a competition because you're competing against however many people are applying for that job. So you need to get any leg up you can on the competition. This gives you that leg up. Now there is a more direct way of getting a job by contributing and that's finding a project that has a funding, like funding behind it that has a full active team of actual developers and contributing to that project. Because guess what? If you're a maintainer, if you're an open source maintainer of that project, you've contributed your time to it, you use it. That's a big one. Like it's actually, it's not, you're not just doing it for the sake of doing it. You actually use the open source project. Guess who they're going to hire first before the random down the street that is just a good developer that's never used their project. They're going to hire the person that's actively contributed to the thing that they've built already. They've already almost onboarded you. It's a no-brainer for them to first look at their maintainers before looking outside. And in fact, just for proof, for proof's sake, before this, before this episode, I was on a Twitter space with a bunch of open source maintainers. And I think three out of the five of them, we were talking about Hacktoberfest, were all hired in that way. They all were first maintainers of the project, of their open source project. And when that project started hiring, they were hired. Because again, like, why wouldn't you? Like, it just makes the most sense. Like, a lot of times the open source maintainer won't want the job because they already have another job. That's fine. But if they do, then yeah, like, it's, it's a, you get, you get the person that's passionate right off the bat that's already on board onto the code. So again, there are direct ways to get jobs. There's indirect ways where you just get the skills. There's a lot of good that can come out for you to participate in Hacktoberfest. Now, obviously, your four contributions are probably not going to lead to that right away, but it is important to get the ball rolling. That's what really what Hacktoberfest is about is get the ball rolling for people in open source. Get more people into it, right? So if you can get your foot in the door, if you can get past the challenges of writing your first pull request, receiving your first rejection, correcting, re like reapplying, all that, you've, you've broken that barrier. Now you can keep doing it. And that's one of the things that I really encourage people to do is like use this as a jumping off point. Don't just think about it again for the t-shirt's sake. It's not for the t-shirt's sake. It's for the jumping off point. It's for the get the ball rolling in a more structured way. Like in an outside of Hacktoberfest, you can contribute to open source projects. No one's stopping you. Right. And it's a good idea to do that. If you, if you miss the boat, if you're listening to this in November or, you know, a year down the line, it doesn't mean you can't contribute to open source projects. You can go out and contribute. I'm just saying if you're listening to this right now, right after we released it, now is a good time because there's structure around it. There's projects that are asking for help that's easier to find now. It's just a little bit easier. The barrier to entry is a little bit lower. That's all. Use it to your advantage.
Let me let me ask you a question here. So I developed a question as you were as you were talking there, and and it, it comes from a little bit further in the show note, but it also I think is applicable here in that you know we're talking a lot about community, working with other developers, getting your skills up, but these um, say issues or these requests are listed publicly, and let's just say once again, same example, day one patch media, shameless self plug, come in. And you want to change that text color. And so somebody writes in an issue on GitHub that says, uh, we need this text color to be more readable. Can you or do you reserve it? How does that work? Are you supposed to scramble to rush to that solution as quickly as possible before everybody else? How does that work? Because you're working, quote unquote, with other developers. But are you working against them to try to get your pull request in first? How does that work? So this will be handled differently by every repo, by every project. But from my understanding, especially in the Hacktoberfest month, it's not about getting your pull request merged. It's about getting it approved. And those are two different things. So if you conform to the, to the project's structure of pull requests and you do everything that they need you to do and 10 people do that, let's say, that's a possibility, like you're saying. Everyone's kind of doing the same thing because you don't reserve it. That's 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 clear. I want to make that clear. You don't reserve an issue. Um, you can say that you're working on it, but that doesn't stop anyone else from doing it. Uh, what will happen is if, you know, five issues come in and they're all good, they can approve five issues and just merge one. So you still get your merge request approved. I want to be clear right now. I don't, I'm not saying that a hundred percent that this is how it works. And I also want to be clear that not all projects are going to do it that way. But if I was a maintainer, especially, that's how I would approach, especially Hacktoberfest. If someone put in the effort, did it properly enough, it just didn't, it wasn't the best one. I would still approve it. I would just delete it after like Hacktoberfest is done. I just wouldn't merge it in, but I would approve it. So I think that's how they get around it. Don't quote me on that. In fact, what I'm going to do right now before I forget is I'm going to write down to verify that. And if there is a correction, I'll put it in the show notes if, 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 it's a diff- if, if it works in a different way. I'm just I'm fairly positive that's how it works. If that's how that works, that makes a lot of sense because somebody might use the text color property in the CSS file in our example. Somebody might go into the WordPress and change something. Somebody might make a whole WordPress plugin to do it, but it all works. But obviously, you only want the most efficient or the most applicable solution. And so I guess you would you know, be able to approve the three examples I just said and then only take the CSS one or only take the WordPress one. Yep. The reason that I think it also works is like uh, just to go down to let's how you can participate. Let's jump right into that. Uh, if you're doing no code contributions – you're contributing to design, for instance, or blogs or videos or podcasts. How I was taught to do it, or how is like I literally asked this from a maintainer is, hey, create a pull request with a link to the blog post that you wrote or a link to the podcast, and we'll just approve it. We're not going to merge it in because there's nothing to merge, but we're just going to approve it and you're going to get your PR uh, for Hacktoberfest. So I'm assuming, again, that some people that that's the same way it works with uh multiple issues being solved by multiple, like an issue being solved by multiple different people in the right way. So it would be sort of the, so the situation would say, let's say a blogger 
a situation would be, um, you know, we make a, cal- a calculator app and it's on GitHub and it's uh, open source and somebody writes a guide on how to use that calculator and somebody else writes a guide on how to use that calculator and somebody else and somebody else and somebody else, they would do a pull request because they're writing a blog slash a guide on what we've done. And obviously you can have more than one guide that apply because people learn differently, people write differently, et cetera. So that, that, that's kind of how that would work is the, is the impression I'm getting. Yes. Okay. That's how it, that's exactly how it works. So any, anyone, number of people can write the guides. Now there might be, again, everyone can do it their own way. All maintainers, all projects can have it. Like we're only accepting 10 blog posts. We're only going to accept whatever. Like I'm not sure if that's the case. But in my eyes, I don't think anyone's going to be limiting that because it's free publicity. That's that's why they're doing this, just to be blatantly honest. Like they're they're opening up for developer advocacy because it's a great way to promote your open source projects, right? So it's definitely something that that definitely one of the main reasons it's happening. But it also allows people to under, start understanding how the pull request process works. So there is a good side effect. But yeah, so how else can you participate? Now, the main way is to go on to GitHub and search for the Hacktoberfest tag. It's a topic slash a tag. That's how it's kind of labeled on GitHub. And it's going to give you a massive list, again, of almost 100,000 projects that have that Hacktoberfest tag. In that list, you can filter it by programming language. And it's usually going to rate, like give you projects with the highest star rating and then down. Right. So it's going to give you the largest projects. And if you keep scrolling, you're going to get the lower the 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 lower rated ones. So if you want to contribute to something that's not as high profile, you can just scroll down. It's not the greatest way to do it, but that's how GitHub has organized it. GitHub also has a secondary option where you can go to the issue tab and in the search, you can type in is colon open is colon issue label colon Hacktoberfest in quotes. And that will give you not just the projects, but it'll give you the actual open issues in the projects. So you can see like, oh, this one is, you know, changing a variable. I can do that. Or this one is uh, implementing a design system. I can do that. I don't know. There's like, there's going to be more defined objectives that you can search through, not just projects. So it's a, it might be a good way to try to kind of do both. That's what, that's my recommendation is to go to both. Now, obviously, there's other people that have created compiled lists as well. I'm going to link a repo by Octilio. Uh, It's going to be in the show notes. It's a GitHub repo with a bunch of open source projects, anywhere from the large ones to the small ones that you can contribute to. And it's going to have it kind of broken down a little bit easier and digestible for you to understand. So... If you want to contribute, I highly recommend going to the show notes. It's going to be on htmlthings.com. And it's going to be one of the like the latest episode, obviously, going to be called What is Hacktoberfest? And checking out all the links that I have in the description there. Now, once you found your repositories or issues that you want to contribute to, make sure to read the guidelines for contributing. Again, bringing back to what Matt was saying. Do you need a structure? Do you need a format? Yes. Almost every time you're going to need to follow how their how to contribute guidelines. Find them in the documentation. If you don't see them, check out previously merged pull requests. They will show you the ones that were approved. Okay. 
So in the merge requests tab, you're going to be able to see the ones that were already approved and just format it the way that they were formatted. Easy peasy. Expect to get some feedback before a successful merge. It's not going to be, unless it's a really simple change, which happens like you, you just found an, a, a spelling mistake. It's probably, you're probably going to be fine. Uh, but if it's a more in-depth coding change, they will probably come back and be like, hey, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Uh, we actually like it in this style. Can you please change it? They'll give you directed feedback. That's the great thing about this. Again, it's all about leveling up your skills. It's all about learning. This is part of it. When you're working in an actual project, you want to conform to the team's uh, structure. And this this is the way to learn how to do that. So take the feedback that they give you, not as criticism, just as feedback. Uh, try to fix it. Try to resubmit. It's a great process to learn. Again, larger projects and companies will be harder to get accepted PRs with because the larger the company, the more maintainers, the more structure they have. So just keep that in mind. If you want to have a less friction approach, it might be better to start with a smaller repo. I was going to ask that, actually. So, I mean, obviously, path leads resistance is what a lot of people will shoot for. But if you're a beginner... Um, or have always contributed to sort of the easier PRs, if you've always done those, always fixed those issues in the past, um, would you recommend going to these larger projects and companies? Or do you only recommend doing that if you care about the product they're making? Because it, it's kind of an argument, I guess, of is it good experience to work with them? Or is it more like they just need to be more structured and bureaucratic because they're big, but you don't need to worry about working with stuff like that? That's a really good question. I think you do in this sense, you do need to have some sort of investment in the project that you're contributing to, whether that be from just an, oh, this is an interesting project perspective, or I'm actually going to use this. So I want to contribute to it. So it doesn't have to be like, oh, this is the best thing in the world. I, this is the only one I'm going to contribute to. No, it can be just like, oh, this is a cool piece of tech that I, I, I'm interested in contributing to. That's fine. That's the, all the motivation you're going to need. And in terms of are the, like, is it just, you know, structure for structure's sake? Do you really need to know that? In my opinion, it's great to have both under your, under your belt. Because again, the larger the company that you work with in real life, in, in, sorry, obviously open source is real life in your real job, let's say it's going to have the same kind of effect. The larger the companies are going to have more structure. So if you want to get a job with a large company, like Google or Apple or whatever, the fangs, you're going to need to be able to conform to these restrictions. And you're going to need to be able to fill out complicated pull requests and accept a bunch of feedback and, you know, do that back and forth dance. So I think it's important to do both. So contribute to the smaller stuff because that's a, that's a great way to get going. That's a great way to build relationships because it's easier to talk to the people and try to find a project that you're kind of passionate about that's in it, that's in the larger space and try to contribute there. Again, your best bet to get a job, if you're going that route, is a larger project that's hiring. Go go ham there. Just like start contributing like crazy in your off time because, yeah, you're going to be gaining skills. You're going to be gaining experience. You're going to have portfolio pieces and you have a chance at a job. So that's like it's no joke that you can find a job in that way because it's not easy, first of all, to contribute. It's not an easy thing. So it's not like, you know, a million people are going to be vying for that opportunity. Like if you have the time, you already have a lot 
a leg up on a lot of people that can contribute. And if you have the skills, you're going to stand out because, you, you, again, everyone's going to see that you're contributing your time. So you have a very good chance at getting that next open spot. So the other thing for beginners, so for larger projects, again, just have that in mind. For beginners, what you can do is you can look for issues that are tagged in specific ways. One of the ways is with a beginner tag or a good first issue tag. So a good first issue tag is usually tagged when a maintainer knows that, hey, this isn't the most complicated thing in the world. Uh, and it would be a great starting point for someone just getting into open source. That's That goes without... Uh, the Hacktoberfest stuff, like even if you're just getting into open source development, good first issue is something that's going to be there for almost any repository that's maintained properly. So those are great ones to kind of dive into the code base, right? The good first issue is sometimes not only about being a beginner. I do want to caution that. It's also about like, hey, this is a good starting point for someone that wants to start contributing to this project. So it might be a complicated task, but it's something that like, is on the surface level of where we're at on this project. So just keep that in mind. Don't, don't get too discouraged if you see a good first issue and it's really complicated. Just move on, try to find another one. And next thing we already talked about, how you contribute in a no-code way, documentation, design. So design is a new one that actually was interesting to me. Like you can go to an open source project a lot of times it's either an engineer with no design background and you can go in and be like, hey, I can get you a Figma design. And uh, you just write, you just do a Figma design for them, submit it as a pull request. And they'll either approve or accept it, maybe give you some feedback on what they want changed. And they can go in and implement it themselves because now they have a design. So that's a really good way if you're a designer, if you're more front end to uh, provide real value to these like smaller open source projects. Uh, and again, blog posts, YouTube videos, podcast episodes about the project, all of that is fair game for any no code contribution. And, you know what? I, yeah. I wanted to say something here is like, mm -hmm. it, it's easy, just to be blunt, it's easy to roll your eyes at being like, oh, great, now they're opening Hacktoberfest up for no code contributions. But with the, I don't want to say the landscape, but with the uh, internet culture, I don't really know what, what you'd call it. But it's really common for somebody to learn a concept and then blog about it or put it on their own personal portfolio, which has a blog component um, or someone who is a programmer first, but then has lately been picking up Figma or Adobe XD, whatever. And they've started to sort of go out of that and then they end up maybe having their own podcast or whatever. It, like there almost seems to always be a... Um, Another piece to what you're doing primarily. If you're primarily coding, maybe you're blogging. If you're primarily blogging, maybe you end up coding a little bit, those type of things. And so I do think that these no code contribution types that you listed are important because I, I guarantee you people were like people out there are probably thinking, oh, great. Like they're just trying to let more people in, you know, for whatever reason. But if you really think about it, it's like th the people that are coding are sometimes making YouTube videos. There's a reason why if you get really stuck on something, you might reach for YouTube for help. And that's acknowledgement of their work, really. And so it's just something I wanted to point out is that it's easy to just think, great, you know, they've taken this away from the programmers, but they haven't because chances are these people that are doing these other things are affecting or literally programming as an aside. Or maybe they're 
their no code contribution is their aside. They're a programmer first and they always work with say react, but they're working for a company and their coding is completely private. They can't be giving out what they're doing. They can't be talking about it. And when they get home, they end up just blogging a bit about it. So that person's still contributing, say, to the programming community at large. There's a, there's, there's a million different ways to have a unique combination of these things. And it's just something I wanted to sort of flat, like shine a light on is that it's important. I think that these, these contributions are, are allowed effectively in here now. Yes, I agree. I 100% agree with that. Uh, so it's really, that, that's really what, uh, Hacktoberfest is all about. That's, that's the main, that's all the kind of information that I wanted to give on Hacktoberfest. I don't know if there's anything else that you want to kind of, uh, do you have any questions, Matt, or anything else you want to suggest or? Yeah, actually, yeah. I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so while you were talking there for a second, I went into, the one GitHub link that you provided by Otacilio N. Don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but it's the awesome Hacktoberfest 2022 compiled list. And it, it, the list itself is actually on GitHub. Um, and uh, I'm scared. <laughs> um, I like I've never done this before. I've never actually like I've never submitted to Hacktoberfest. I've never submitted to a public repo. But even though I have like a fair bit of experience with Git and stuff like this. Um, this is intimidating and I don't know how to get over that intimidation factor, but uh, I don't know. It's just something I wanted to point out, <laughs> even though I'm the host of a, of a web development podcast, this still scares me. So I, I get it. Like I get the intimidation factor and I, I understand. Uh, I kind of feel it as well. Um, a lot of the times, especially with these open source projects, but it's one of those things where you just have to kind of step through the door and just try. I think until you try it, you won't know. And the best way to do it is just, you know, put yourself out there. It's it. I know it's kind of dumb to say that, but there's no other way to do it. Like I can't, I can't be like, you know, just Zen meditate for a second and you got it, but it's just not going to work. Like you have to just open up the lists that I'm going to give you uh, for the listeners, listeners out there in the show notes and try it and, I, I think you'll be fine. Like, honestly, I think you'll be fine. Cause I, this is one of these things where I'm like, yeah, I'll for sure try to contribute to this this year. And then it's just sort of like, yeah, tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. And away it goes. You know what I mean? Like I, the reason why I even bring this up is that it, it, I'm trying to point out that it, it's, it makes sense that people get worried about this type of thing because I just made, uh, like I just showed Mike, I just made, uh, a, a big old WordPress site with a bunch of custom functionality. And I've been playing with Elementor for the first time, but also making my own, uh, what you call them, short codes and stuff like this, just to sort of get back into the swing of things. It's been a while since I worked on something from scratch and like that project's up and it's production and it's this and that. But then if you were like, Hey, would you mind contributing that same knowledge to a project? You're like, man, those guys are going to think I'm an idiot. Like I probably did this, the, I probably did this the dumb way or something like that. Those are the thoughts that immediately rushed in my mind. And I'm sure that a bunch of other people have that too. You might be right, Mike, where you just kind of have to jump, you know, and like just make that jump, like go into a, a GitHub repo that's participating, go into that issues tab and just sort of do it. But it's uh, it's 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 difficult. Like, I'm not going to lie. It's uh, it's difficult. That's for sure. 
I don't I don't have anything else to add other than that, to be clear. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I other think than I, that, I, I looked at the list and I got real scared. And then I just I just like I, I didn't close it. I ended up on a Pokedex app. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's but, what I mean. Like there are these little projects that it, it's not as intimidating. If you look for the smaller things and just work your way up, you can do it. Like that's that's my goal with this is, yes, the larger stuff can be intimidating, but there are plenty of options. Maybe, maybe I'll, maybe I'll try one. Maybe I'll try one and, and share it on Twitter. I don't know what it'll be. That'd be cool. It might even be a Figma. Like it might mm-hmm. even be a Figma picture or Figma design rather. Uh, I don't know. But, uh, cause this, I mean, the reason why I'm focusing on Figma right now is because this Pokedex app needs a Figma design. But, um, I don't know. Maybe we'll see. We'll see. Uh, I'll, I'm not going to promise. I was going to, I was going to have like a big thing when the, the episode's about to end and I was going to be like, man, Mike, you know what? Go down the list, select something, be like, I'm going to do this. And then I looked at the list and didn't do that. So maybe we'll see. We'll see on my Twitter. Maybe we'll see what happens. But uh, I think I think that concludes this episode. I uh, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, Hacktoberfest is, of course, I was going to say right around the corner, but it, it's it's here and uh, the time is the time is ticking. So if you uh, if you want to participate, of course, you know, get get it going now, but uh, it is time to end. So remember that we are on uh, Patreon. That's patreon.com slash HTML, all the things. If you want to support the show and many thanks to our $3 tier patrons, Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital on blueblackdigital.com. Chris, Chris from Selfmade Web Designer on selfmadewebdesigner.com. Tim from The Web Hacker on thewebhacker.com. DL Ford from dlford.io. Bib Hashdash from Nine Block Media on nineblockmedia.com. Jason from Geek Life Radio via geekliferadio.com. Michael Curie from MC Web Studio via mcwebstudio.ca. Magnus from YesWeb via yesweb.se. And Jeff from Twitter via at the Jeff McHale. And of course, Fire Ant Season. Almost missed it. Fire Ant Season via fireantseason.com. Feel free to leave a comment or review in the platform you're listening to this on. And this outro will sign us off. You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media. On Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things, signing off.